freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Pal Shah, and I'm here with Roxana Espaz, Bill Ayers, Light Eye Lee, and Bernadine Dorn, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom. Writer and freedom fighter Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring, our podcast's hopeful theme song. Tom's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. As long as we've got our friend and comrade Tom Morello here, let's share Tom's short, brilliant speech late last year as Rage Against the Machine was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Introduce and induct Rage Against the Machine into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. is Tom Morello and I'm one quarter of Rage Against the Machine. I am deeply grateful for the musical chemistry I've had the good fortune to share with Brad Wilk, Tim Comerford, and Zach De La Rocha. Like most bands, we have differing perspectives on a lot of things, including about being inducted into the Rock Hall. My perspective is that tonight is a great opportunity to celebrate the music and the mission of the band, to celebrate with the fifth member of the band, and that is Rage Against the Machine's incredible fans. You're the reason we are here, and the best way to celebrate this music is for you to carry on that mission and that message. The lesson I've learned from Rage fans is that music can change the world. Daily, I hear from fans who have been affected by our music and in turn have affected the world in significant ways. Organizers, activists, public defenders, teachers, the presidents of Chile and Finland have all spent time in our mosh pit. When protest music is done right, you can hear a new world emerging in the songs, skewering the oppressors of the day and hinting that there might be more to life than what was handed to us. Can music change the world? The whole fucking aim is to change the world, or at a bare minimum, to stir up a shitload of trouble. When when Rage started, we rehearsed deep in the San Fernando Valley. This guy passed by our place regularly and one day asked, what are you guys doing in there? We said, we're a band. He asked to hear us and we said, sure. He came in, sat down. This is the first guy to ever hear the music of Rage Against the Machine. We played him a couple songs. After we finished, we asked him what he thought. He paused, stood up and said, your music makes me want to fight. Throughout history, the spark of rebellion has come from unexpected quarters. Authors, economists, carpenters. But as Salvador Allende said, there is no revolution without songs. So who's to say what musicians might or might not be able to achieve with revolutionary intent when the bouncing crowd makes the Richter scale shake? Personally, I'd like to thank my wife Denise and my kids who remind me daily that the world is worth fighting for. 
And thanks to all the musicians and change makers who helped shape the band's collective vision. Rage has also been fortunate to have so many talented co-workers and co-conspirators who have believed in the band. From Michael Goldstone, the guy who signed us and insisted the first radio single be an unedited song featuring 17 cuss words, to the greatest guitar tech of all time, Slim Richardson, thank you. And thanks and deep appreciation to the hundreds of others, from those who put up flyers to those who have moved mountains to amplify the message and the music. What I hear in the music is this, that the world is not going to change itself. But throughout history, those who have changed the world in progressive, radical, or even revolutionary ways did not have any more money, power, courage, intelligence, or creativity than anyone watching tonight. The world's changed by average, everyday, ordinary people who have had enough and are willing to stand up for a country and a planet that is more humane, peaceful, and just. And that, and that is what I'm here to celebrate tonight. Fans often ask, but what can I do? Well, let's start with these three things. One, dream big and don't settle. Two, aim for the world you really want without compromise or apology. And three, don't wait for us. Rage is not here, but you are. The job we set out to do is not over. Now you're the ones that must testify. If you've got a boss, join a union. If you're a student, start an underground paper. If you're an anarchist, throw a brick. If you're a soldier or a cop, follow your conscience, not your orders. If you're bummed out, you didn't get to see Rage Against the Machine, then form your own band and let's hear what you have to say. If you're a human being, stand up for your planet before it's too late. So tomorrow, so tomorrow, crank up some rage and head out and confront injustice wherever it rears its ugly head. It's time to change the world, brothers and sisters, or at a bare minimum, to stir up a shitload of trouble. <laughs> nice. And finally, and finally, a special thanks a special thanks to my mom, Mary Morello, a retired public high school teacher, a proud Rage Against the Machine fan, and a lifelong radical who turned 100 years old a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> She's watching at home tonight, but she asked me to tell you this. History, like music, is not something that happens. It's something you make. Thank you very much. We're transmitting, as always, on the Freedom Frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily into the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be, but is not yet. We often open with a poem, but this week is a little different because the poem we are reading is from a listener, Shashar Efrati, who wrote to us in response to Rafat Alarir's poem, If I Must Die, which was featured in our last episode. If I Must Live, by Shashar Efrati. If I must live to witness this carnage, this alarming history of catastrophes and abominations, may I honor your brightest and darkest lights, resistance by pen and by sword, for both were thrust upon you by destiny and declarations. If I must live to tell, your poetry will be adorned in caged flowers, iron gates and bulletproof glass, fixed on the street as a call to humanity from hell on earth, that we owe the biggest debt to the poorest? 
but only poor in circumstance, not dignity or civility. The note that accompanied that poem reads as follows. I know you didn't invite a poem, but I felt compelled to respond to Rafat's poem. Your talk inspired me to order two more books that I haven't read yet. I have a big pile and it's growing all the time. I'm currently reading The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine by Ilan Papa and Rashid Khalidi's The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. Thank you for your humanity and truth. Well, Shashar, we appreciate you reaching out to us and sharing your poem. We love hearing from listeners and hope that this inspires others to share your thoughts and insights with us. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Wonderful for me to be here with Premalyn Nadison, professor of history at Barnard College, Columbia University, where she co-directs the Barnard Center for Research on Women. She's the author of Welfare Warriors and also Household Workers Unite. Today, we're mostly going to be talking about her latest book, Care, The Highest Stage of Capitalism. But Professor Nadison has also been awarded many, many fellowships and awards, and I'm interested in one in particular called the Marguerite Casey Foundation Freedom Scholar Award. We'll get to the question of your latest book, but maybe you could start by talking a bit about what a Freedom Scholar is. Well, I think the the Casey Foundation Freedom Scholar Award is about acknowledging and recognizing academics and intellectuals who have combined scholarship and activism and who have been in some ways, I think, pushed the boundaries of thinking through that connection and that collaboration about ways in which we can think about the meaning and the significance and the practical, abil- the practical a- applicability of academic knowledge. A lot of people would say activism and scholarship don't go together. That is, activism is all about advocacy and fierce point of view. Uh, scholarship is, is more in the world of objectivity. How do you see or how do you, how do you imagine uh, combining a life of activism and a life of scholarship? Yeah, I think it's a myth that uh, academic scholarship or intellectualism is objective or somehow free of any kind of, of bias. Um, I actually became an academic because of my activism. That's why I decided to um, enter graduate school. I've been an activist and an organizer for um, 40 years. Um, and I first got interested in thinking about knowledge and knowledge production and history because I uh, met someone of high school friend of my father's. I'm originally from South Africa, I should say that, Bill. Originally from South Africa, was born there, lived there as a young child, and didn't really understand a lot about my own family's connections to and ties to the anti-apartheid movement until I was in high school. And I started to learn about that and became involved in the anti-apartheid movement myself. 
And I think out of that experience, I realized there was so much more I needed to learn and understand about history, about uh, racial capitalism, about organizing. And so for me, the relationship between scholarship and activism has always been intertwined. I want to always foreground the question of why does this scholarship matter? And how can activist voices help us think through the intellectual work we are producing? How old were you when you got your doctorate? No, I, I, I didn't come later. I, um, I actually went, uh, you know, I, I took one year off between undergraduate and grad school. So really, from the time I was in high school, I was an activist and an organizer. Yes. Um, and that really kind of set me on this path all through my college career of thinking about organizing and activism um, as central to my academic work. Did you go to school in South Africa or in the United States? No, in Michigan. So I came to the United States when I was a young child. Okay, you went to school in Michigan and then you went on to the University of Michigan. Is that where you met Barbara Ransby? That's right. That is where I met Barbara Ransby. So I, I started my activist career when I was in high school, started an anti-apartheid organization at my high school. And I was leaving for college the next year. And my teacher told me, you have to look up this person named Barbara Ransby at the University of Michigan because she had a stellar reputation as an organizer. She had been at Columbia in the mid-1980s uh, as a leader of the anti-apartheid movement and had just come to Michigan. So I literally walked onto the campus and asked around for Barbara Ransby and met her very quickly. And uh, That's a wonderful meeting. Barbara Ransby and I were at the University of Illinois Chicago she organized a group of us, and we call, We had an informal grouping that met every month or so, and we called ourselves the Engaged Scholars. And one day I was rushing uh, to a meeting, and I picked up a folder from my desk, and it said, Enraged Scholars. I had miswritten it. But I thought, hey, that works. After all, I'm both enraged and engaged. <laughs> I agree that, that politics and, and scholarship are not necessarily separate. And I think often of Howard Zinn um, and, and his writing about the role of the intellectual. I remember him saying something like, um, if by objectivity we mean, for example, that a metallurgist uh, should be honest about measurements, well, that makes perfect sense. But if that metallurgist decides that she would like her work to be involved in making plowshares rather than making bombs, there is no contradiction because we're both scholars and thinking people and engaged in the world and citizens and residents. You do that. Your work is so thorough. It stands so clearly on evidence and compelling arguments. Um, but you also do take a stand. Yeah, and I, I actually think it's very important to, to point that out in, in that to say that scholarship is not objective is not to suggest that people write whatever they feel like writing, right? That there is, in fact, um, collection of data. There is looking at archival material, interviewing people, looking at, um, you know, other kinds of government documents and resources. It is only by gathering that material together, by analyzing it, by thinking through it carefully, that we are able to develop conclusions, I think, that help us understand the world better. So it's not a question of 
simply spouting things off, right? But but it is one of thinking very carefully about the kinds of questions we're asking and the people who we're looking to and the sources we're looking at. I think that's critical. I mean, what kinds of questions do we ask? I, I often think we should be asking questions about who benefits and who suffers, um, who decides, and how do these decisions get made? What kinds of questions... Um, for example, do you ask of your scholarship? Um, well, I think really since I started writing and studying, the primary question I've been asking is, how can we create a more just world on some basic level? How can we create a more just world? And for me, the answer that to that question often re- resides with looking at grassroots organizing and how people have mobilized um, especially poor women of color who are some of the most marginalized in our society. Um, you know, what examples can we look at historically? And I've written a book about the welfare rights movement because that for me is one of the movements that has demonstrated how people who have relatively little political power have almost no economic power who are who have a number of forces arrayed against them, including ideological forces, were able to come together in the 1960s to make demands on the state and to assert their rights to welfare assistance and their right to mother their children. Um, and so for me, it's a really powerful example uh, of what we can learn about in terms of how people mobilize um, and how we can begin to kind of shift the balance of power. Yes, Welfare Warriors um, and Household Workers Unite, the books that precede this book, um, focus on grassroots organizing. Talk a bit about that. Absolutely. And Household Workers Unite, I, I, I think, is, is a history of the domestic worker rights movement in the 1960s and 70s. And it that movement um, really helps us rethink the meaning of labor and labor organizing. So historically, labor has often associated with white men who sit in smoky rooms with their cigars, you know, de- debating how you know what their next strategy is going to be. And I think when we look at the example of domestic workers, we see mothers with their children (laughs) sitting in kitchens or sitting in parks or playgrounds or laundry rooms, talking about how to mobilize other domestic workers. And it really reframes, I think, both how we understand labor, since domestic work and unpaid women's labor was often defined outside the boundaries of legitimate work. And it helps us rethink the labor movement and labor organizing and who, in fact, are labor leaders. I first started thinking about the importance of the domestic worker rights movement in the early 2000s because I'm, I live in New York City and I was reading, you know, in the New York Times, political pundits, all sorts of people talking about the decline of the labor movement at that moment in history. At the same time, I was going to demonstrations in downtown Manhattan of Domestic Workers United, which was a group here in New York City. And I saw hundreds of people organizing, demanding labor rights, while the pundits were suggesting that the labor movement was on the decline. And so there was a real tension and contradiction there for me, and it made me realize our very narrow definition of labor and labor organizing. Yes, yes, that's a very helpful perspective. We should think from the margins to the center. 
uh, you evoke images of a smoke-filled room, um, kind of the labor aristocracy. But there's a great focus now, and, and you certainly um, have been very instrumental in, in looking, making this the focus, and that is on nurses, teachers, women-led unions. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a number of feminist scholars and Marxist feminist scholars in particular who have written about this, Nancy Frazier and Titi Pacharya, you know, who've talked about this as a kind of as a new model of feminist organizing. But there's a much longer history as well. People like Tara Hunter and Robin Kelly, who've really um, drawn our attention to working class women and, um, you know, and feminist occupations as at the cutting edge of labor. Long before I knew you, I imagine it was even before you were born. I was an organizer in Cleveland, and one of the issues that we organized around was welfare rights. Uh, We had a march that year, the summer of 1966, from Cleveland to Columbus to demand that lawmakers pay attention to welfare mothers who needed assistance in sending their kids back to school. Uh, Welfare moms were visible in Cleveland in those years, but they were surrounded by, enmeshed in stereotype. And our march from Cleveland to Columbus was an attempt to create a different narrative of people who had agency and skills and also needs that ought to be met. Yeah, and that was a really critical moment in the history of the welfare rights movement and the history of state welfare policy because that was a moment when more and more African-American women and other women of color were getting on the welfare rolls and welfare recipients were being demonized. Um, and so the movement is able to come together. And I think SDS played a, a crucial role in this. Uh, the, you know, there were a number of um, student organizers, activists who supported the welfare rights movement. It was a multiracial movement. Um, and so I think in that regard, it was also a model of the kind of, Uh, social movement organizing that can be forged for the future. Yeah, I went from Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, uh, to our community organizing wing, which was called the Economic Research and Action Project, ERAP. And um, there was a, we were very involved in the national organization. Uh, George Wiley um, was the leader of it. And we marched from Cleveland to Columbus. It took 10 days and we stopped in churches along the way and we organized community events along the way. Uh, but for 10 days, we marched during the day. We were threatened by both um, uh, vigilantes and the police. And every night, uh, crosses were burned in the lawns of the churches we stayed in. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating because we tend to identify that kind of racial violence with the Deep South. Uh, but in fact, there was plenty of it in the North, right? And so I think, you know, to understand the question of racism as a problem that was confined to the South is a really, is a misreading of U.S. history and structures of power. And there was a tremendous amount of racial violence, um, you know, cross burnings, bombings uh, that took place in Northern communities when people began to push up against the power structure. I think that's a really important point, you know, that famous historic picture of three men being lynched uh, on a single tree, one of whom survived and two of whom were murdered, uh, that, that photo was taken in Indiana. And it's a reminder that there is no innocence, really, in this country. Another person who comes to mind is Ai-jen Poo, um, another Chicagoan, another organizer who I'm sure you've worked closely with. 
Yes. Um, we worked together, uh, you know, for many years. Uh, she wasn't in, in involved with the welfare rights movement, but with the domestic worker rights movement. So she was one of the founders of uh, the Committee Against Anti-Asian Violence in New York City, which led to the formation of Domestic Workers United in New York, um, and then eventually to the formation of the National Domestic Workers Alliance nationally. And she eventually became executive director of NDWA, and in many ways became the voice of the domestic worker rights movement in this country, and really has played a pivotal role in helping convene groups nationally. Let's now move on to talk about your latest book, Care. The book is important. For, you know, and it's a really powerful rethinking of capitalism. Um, maybe you talk a bit about the thesis of the book and what motivated you to write this book. Yeah, so um, what I argue in this book is the way we can analyze and think through care as a site of profit and extraction in U.S. history. And I think there is a very long history of this, particularly vis-a-vis black and brown communities and how um, profit has been extracted from the lives of people of color. There is a, a longer history of Marxist feminist scholarship that looks at what they call the tension between profit extraction and life, okay, the people's ability to live. And this has not been the case for communities of people of color. Uh, and we can look at the example of slavery, for example. Um, sl- uh, black women bearing children was profit for slaveholders. And so looking at this history, I think, suggests to us, and then the contemporary analysis of capitalism, looks at how care is increasingly an important site of profit extraction. Um whether we're talking about the health and hospital industry or whether we're talking about companies like care.com, uh, which has pro- which is worth hundreds of millions of dollars, that American capitalism has shifted to such a degree that care has become an increasingly important part of how capitalism functions and survives. So we can take a look at some basic statistics. Um, For example, the percentage of American workers who are employed in manufacturing versus in health and education. And so, so when I talk about care, when I talk about the care industry, part of what I'm looking at is are all of the... Uh, functions that are necessary for us to survive. It could, it's healthcare, it's housing, it's uh, food production, et cetera, et cetera. So in 1980, about 22% of American workers were in manufacturing and 8% were in, um, in health and education. Um, but that, that number has flipped in the, in, more recently. So something like 28% are employed in healthcare and education today. If we look at the top 10 Fortune 500 companies today, four are part of the care economy. So we CVS Health, United Healthcare, uh, McKesson, which is a pharmaceutical company, and Amerisource Burgeon, which is a wholesale um, drug company. By contrast, in 1980, the top 10 included six oil and gas companies, two tech firms, and two auto manufacturers. 
So part of what I'm looking at is how has American capitalism shifted? How have we moved away from manufacturing towards healthcare services, the labor of care or social reproduction? Um, we can also look at spending, at government spending. So in 2019, the federal government spent $732 billion on defense. Federal health care spending in 2019 was $1.2 trillion. And I'm saying I'm I'm using 2019 numbers because that's pre-pandemic, right? So in pre-pandemic, we spent 1.2 trillion on healthcare, federal healthcare, and 732 on defense. So to me, there's a real indication of how our economy relies. And by our economy, I mean capitalist profit relies ever more on people's need to take care of themselves and to take care of one another. That has become not a, uh, a intention with capitalism, but a source of capitalist growth and profit. Let's underline that point, care. You know, it's such a, a powerful human instinct to care for one another. It's so essential to our survival. And yet, Capitalism makes everything a product, as Marx pointed out. And so suddenly care itself becomes commodified. Uh, you get into this in detail you know, with such compelling arguments. Talk a bit about that. Yeah, I think that um, care historically um, has been understood as a kind of framework for thinking about developing a universal politics. Everybody needs care. We all care about one another. We all are caregivers. And so I think especially for people on the left and for liberals, the notion of moving towards a caring economy feels like an alternative to neoliberalism, feels like an alternative to this kind of uh, the shift to capitalism that has destroyed the welfare state, that has destroyed the very structures of support um, that have enabled us to um, provide community and care for one another. You know, and so I think leftist and liberal politics is still centered on expanding the welfare state, for example, and on thinking about how we can invest more money in education, how we can invest more money in the care economy. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But what I am saying is we need to be very, very careful about how that money is being spent, about what the checks and balances are. Because in fact, um, a lot of the money, a lot of federal money and state money that is allocated towards what we would call the care economy actually goes into the hands of the private sector and the for-profit private sector in particular. So I'll just give you one example. Um, there's a company called Maximus, which is the largest health and human services contractors with local, state, and federal governments. In 2020, Maximus had about $3.7 billion worth of state contracts in New York alone. Um, and the growth strategy for Maximus what is to, and I'm quoting here from their uh, filings with the SEC, is, is the demographic of people who are experiencing financial hardship and other barriers that require a social safety net um, and support for work. So Maximus is benefiting from people who are in poverty, who are in need. 
Um, and companies like Maximus did really well during the pandemic, right? At a time when people needed the most support and a time when lots and lots of federal and state dollars were flowing into what we would call the care industry. So I think we have to think very carefully about what, what a push for an expanded care economy means. Um, and I think there is um, plenty of evidence to suggest to us that simply allocating money to state programs is not in and of itself a solution. What about Pfizer? The pandemic seems to have been gold for pharmaceuticals like Pfizer. Government money, taxpayer money, contributing to their super profits. Absolutely. So, I mean, all of the pharmaceutical companies, most of the healthcare companies, um, made a tremendous amount of money during the pandemic. Cigna had a profit of $5.5 billion in 2021, United Healthcare, $17 billion. Um, so there was $4.7 trillion of federal money spent on the pandemic, right? Um, some of this went to individuals and to families, but most of it, about two thirds of it, went to hospitals, to businesses, to pharmaceutical companies, schools, and state and local governments. So just to give one example, Regeneron um, is a, a, dr a drug, ma drug maker that developed the antibody treatment for uh, COVID, got $450 million from the federal government, right? Once they gave an initial number of doses, they were able to charge 10 times what it cost to manufacture the antibody treatment. So yes, we did get some doses, but in the second year, the federal government again paid millions of dollars to purchase additional doses. So federal money for healthcare, for the development of vaccines has actually become a boon for pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, you know, liberal politicians campaign on reining in the pharmaceutical industry, but nothing happens. I think back to Purdue Pharma, they both created the opioid crisis and they, then they created a drug to solve the opioid crisis. So they both, you know, sell you the, the poison and then sell you the antidote. It reminded me of Henry Kissinger, who was the architect of so much mayhem and murder and imperial aggression and predation all over the world. And then suddenly he's transformed into a world statesman it just, it really is infuriating. But um, yeah, and it, you know, it, it raises this question, I think, for me about crisis, and what does crisis mean? And Naomi Klein has written, you know, powerfully about this um, in the shock doctrine. But you know, we, th we tend to think of crises as moments when we are, in fact, able to come together and kind of move in a, in a more positive direction. And, you know, Klein, uh, you know, obviously argues that in fact, that has not been the case is that crisis historically has been a moment when certain conservative forces, neoliberal interests have come in and essentially redefined um, a political situation. I think we have seen the same things with the care crisis. So yes, we are living in through a care crisis right now. Um, this was the case during the pandemic. It was also the case prior to the pandemic. Families are struggling to find child affordable childcare. Families are struggling with how to take care of their elderly family members, how to take care of disabled family members, how to take care of themselves in many cases, right? We can look at the housing crisis and the number of people who are unhoused. 
um, the crisis of healthcare, people who cannot afford um, the medications that they need. We, we are living in a care crisis right now. And the question is, for me, what does that crisis mean? How are people addressing that crisis or dealing with the crisis? And many of us care and want to pull us out, want to think through and really grapple with, well, what, what can we do to address this care crisis? I think what capitalism sees at this moment is crisis means money. Crisis means profit. Crisis means dollars. So, you know, we can look, for example, at there are companies like, um, you know, um, Pivotal Ventures, which was founded by by Melinda French Gates, which has produced an investor's guide and an entrepreneur's guide to the care economy, because they see this crisis as a kind of growing market for care that capital can begin to invest in. So some people see this crisis as a, as a sort of a, a new avenue for investment. It really is always that way. When I, when I worked in childcare, um, we often thought about the fact that this was a problem that everyone of a certain age um, had, that we all had young children, we all needed help. And yet we faced this collective problem individually. Uh, it's obviously a social problem, but it's experienced individually and it's kind of made individualistic in our culture, in our society. How do we shift that? Yeah, that's a really great point, Bill, because this is the crux of the problem, right? Is care, the basic care that we all need is privatized in this country, right? We don't have a system of universal daycare. We don't have a universal system of elderly health care or support for elderly health care, whether that's done in individual homes or in institutional settings. Our, um, our health care system has been uh, hollowed out um, be- because of neoliberalism. So I think that part of what we have to do is to shift this mindset that these are individual problems in the same way that we understand and believe that you know, the environmental crisis is a collective problem. We have to understand and think about how care uh, for families is in fact not an individual problem, but is a collective, uh, it should be a collective commitment. How do we make that shift though? Everything is individualized. Taking care of the elders is individualized. We had both my mother-in-law and my father living with us in the last years of their lives. And you know, we got a lot of praise from friends and, and neighbors for doing this because we took them into our home. But what was kind of maddening was there was no help coming from the government, from the larger society. We all had parents at that age needing help. Um, my mom, we got some uh, financial help because my mom was put in a home. But this was a home for very privileged people. And yet, her experience was one of, of real, I don't know, neglect. Um, I, I wonder how we organize around shifting um, that paradigm. Yeah, and you know, it's you know, we can think about it as a political question, as an economic question, but for me, it's fundamentally a moral and an ethical question, 
right? Um, and it's a moral and ethical question in the sense that we as a society should be, and I, you know, I think many people are committed to this idea of no one should starve. <laughs> Everyone should have uh, a home to live in. Everyone should have access to health care. And I think if we believe in those fundamental things, then we do in fact have to figure out how we can begin to move forward to create the structures to make that happen. I think we've already seen the beginnings of that. Um, and we can see during the pandemic, for example, there were uh, mutual aid societies that developed where people provided care for one another. In my neighborhood, there was a friendly fridge and anybody who needed food could go to the fridge. My neighbor from upstairs stocked the fridge. Um, I work with a group called Damayan Migrant Workers Association in New York, which is a Filipino organization that helps people escape from labor trafficking situations. They provided care packages to people who were excluded from federal and state benefits. There's a long history of this with the Black Panther Party and their free breakfast program, their free medical services for people in need. So I think that, um, you know, historically there are communities that have not benefited from state aid, that have been uh, abandoned by the state. And in those places, in those communities, people have stepped up to provide the assistance and care that they need. Um, I work with groups in Mississippi where it's the same thing. Mississippi is the poorest state in the country. Uh, it has the lowest monthly welfare pay payments and the lowest rate of uh, people receiving welfare relative to need. But and if you go to rural parts of Mississippi, you will see that people have opened up their homes to take care of children in the neighborhood simply because they see a need to do that. And so I think there are examples of how people have stepped out of the care crisis as a kind of individual privatized problem and have begun to move towards thinking about more collective solutions. I'm just thinking also that um, I don't know if maybe this is a generational thing, but at least from my perspective, I'm seeing a lot of uh, mobilization because many younger folks are, are facing uh, health issues because of COVID. And, and they're seeing uh, a, a need to, to organize and mobilize because of COVID as a mass disabling event. Suddenly they're, they're being faced with uh, much, much lo uh, larger health issues as a result of long COVID. Um, family members uh, are facing uh unknown health issues. They're not getting the help and, um, and support that they need, even if they do have health insurance. Um, some people are not able to return to work in the same way or return to work at all uh, as a result of, uh, of um, COVID or some of the additional uh, health uh, you know, uh, issues that they're facing. And, um, and suddenly we're looking at a, a situation where you know, people with disabilities made up, you know, 20, 25% of the population. And potentially now we're looking at a much higher rate of disabled uh, people in our, in our uh, nation. And so I think that realization is really impacting particularly younger folks who were already dealing with student debt, who were already looking at the reality that they might never own a home. Um, that they were struggling with rent uh, increases in in some of the larger urban areas, and and all of this just steamrolls them. And so, what are what are your options? 
and how do you mobilize and how do you organize? Um, so, you know, I see COVID as having been um, in many ways a big organizing moment for, for them. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think um, it awakened people to a lot of um, kind of the ways in which power operates and how care as a site of profit and extraction operates. So I think the fact, you know, what, what you just mentioned in terms of um, debt, student debt and housing are other ways we can see that young people, actually anybody who is simply trying to survive, I want to get my education so I can get a job, or I want to get a mortgage so I can have a place to live, that those have also become sites of profit, right? And we know now that capital benefits when people are in debt, capital benefits when people's homes are taken away from them, capital benefits when people go to college for a couple years and then drop out but are saddled with student loans. That in fact, that all of these ways that people have kind of tried to develop strategies to help them succeed in life are sources of profit and extraction, rather than kind of basic supports that allow people to participate in the economy fully. Not participating in the economy fully as we traditionally traditionally understand that has become the way capitalism has has been thriving. Your book has wonderful models, domestic workers, um, finding a site to organize, you know, because it's not like uh, the auto industry or the steel industry where you had a point of production, but the, the imaginative ways in which organizers found, for example, uh, parks on Sunday morning where immigrant women gathered to share stories, to build community, and that became a site of organizing. It reminds me of the Bus Riders Union in L.A. How do you organize bus riders? Not bus drivers, but, but people who ride the buses. And again, the Bus Riders Union in L.A. was so creative in finding a way to build collective consciousness and find a site where they could bring people together. I think we are one of the most backward for sure. I, I don't, I, you know, I don't know if I would say we are the most backwards. We're pretty backwards on it, perhaps leading the way um, in, in terms of how, how to model a society that does not provide support for people. Um, why? I think a lot of it has to do with questions of race and, and how, how poverty is understood, how equity is understood, you know, one of the striking things to me that happened over the past several years, although it has a longer history, is how care is talked about. And I mentioned this previously. Care is a kind of universal discourse that connects us all. And we saw during the pandemic, the kind of in New York City, we were all banging our pots outside the window at seven o'clock in the evening to thank all the healthcare workers and, you know, all the uh, rhetoric about how important care workers are. And, you know, so there's a kind of celebration of of care workers. But in fact, most of the care workers, and that is the lowest paid healthcare workers, domestic workers, the people who were, um, you know, food, food delivery people, um, uh, you know, with Uber Eats and companies like that, are not getting the care they need, right? So there's a real disconnect between uh, who's being cared for, and who's doing the caring. So care is not, in fact, a universal discourse. It reminds me, I think it was Rousseau 
who said, you may not be ready for politics, or you may not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you. And nothing could be clearer than the climate crisis, or the Dobbs decision, or debt. You know, we may all say, well, politics, how, how antagonistic, how boring, how uninteresting. But these things actually matter. Um, and I think you're right, Premla, we have to raise the moral questions. We have to stand, you know, we have to ask ourselves, as good people, as people who want to be good, what's standing in the way of our ability to be good in the public square? And it reminds me of homelessness in Chicago. We have tens of thousands of unhoused people, tens of thousands of vacant apartments. What's standing in the way of making that match? And of course, what's standing in the way is um, racial capitalism. And it kind of brings to mind, that I may be wrong about this, but it seems that other capitalist countries uh, do a better job of making the connection between, for example, uh, care as an individual uh, virtue and, and caring as an individual virtue and taking care of folks in the public square. Why are we unique? Right. And exactly. And, you know, and I think that dividing line between who gets cared for and who is doing the care is one of race and gender. Right. So historically, it has been people of color, um, poor women of color in particular, who have been outside the boundaries of the care economy. Um, and they are the ones who are doing the care. And so when, you know, to go back to your question, which I now remember, <laughs> of, you know, how can we explain or how can we understand why we are so far behind? It has to do with the question of racial division and racial diversity and how some people are considered unworthy of support and care and, and some people are considered, um, you know, the people who need to be cared for. Um, and that has shaped both the privatization of care, and it has also shaped our welfare system, our public provisions, our public assistance, who has access to healthcare, all of that. That's such an important point. Racial history of this country and the ongoing afterlife of slavery really are unique. Um, and somehow the toxic individualism that is so characteristic of our culture and white supremacy, which is so deep in our DNA, create a unique kind of catastrophe. And, and I'm always taken by the racialized language even of the public. So we talk about public welfare. We're not talking about um, farms or, or big industries getting tax breaks. We're talking about individual women living on the west side of Chicago. Or we talk about public hospitals and a certain image comes to mind, public transportation. All of these words have somehow been corrupted and, and, and made and become kind of racialized in our culture. Yeah, and, and there's been a number of proposals in the past few years for a, a care infrastructure, for reinvesting in the care economy, um, for expanding, um, you know, the way we want to care for people. It's interesting to me because that sometimes includes child, the expansion of the child tax credit, of course, all, you know, which are important, um, you know, other kinds of supports, especially for working people. But it's interesting to me that welfare, 
uh, has never been a part of that conversation. So when people talk about the care infrastructure or in, or expanding our investment in care, they are not talking about the poorest of the poor. They are not talking about poor single mothers who need uh, assistance in the home. I think that if we really wanted to talk about um, in reinvesting in care, we have to start with the people who are most in need. We have to talk about people who are outside uh, the um, the workforce, who don't have the basic supports um, to care for themselves or their children. Um, and I think one place to begin that is with a guaranteed annual income. Uh, there's a wonderful podcast that Eve Ewing did with um, with our friends Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger called Guaranteed. It's a four-part series and really wonderful examples of... Um, what happens when people are guaranteed as a kind of human right, the basic um, income that allows them to live lives of, of somewhat, somewhat um, not just survival, but really lives of dignity. Um, let's go back to organizers and, 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 and movements um, and your organizing. The New Deal, you know, we talk about the afterlife of slavery, but the New Deal um, there were many, many people not included in the social programs of the New Deal. And there's the afterlife of that. And, and these are kind of your people, the folks you're, you organize with, the folks you lift up. Yeah, and I think it's, it's important to recognize how this current care crisis is not only a result of neoliberalism, right? I think neoliberalism and the dismantling of the welfare state and um, the disinvestment in public schools are all really, really important. And we have to talk about what happened in the 1970s and the 1980s. But I think to suggest that that was the beginning of what we would call a care crisis is actually a misunderstanding, that there were many people, uh, especially people of color, especially African-Americans, especially uh, immigrants from, um, from other parts of the world, black and brown people, who had experienced a care crisis for many, many, many generations, even during this sort of golden era of the New Deal. I think some of what um, people are suggesting now, especially people, uh, you know, in the Democratic Party, is that in, if we, in fact, reconstitute the, the New Deal, if we reconstitute our welfare state, we would address this care crisis. And I think that from the perspective of the poorest of the poor, the New Deal was very imperfect, <laughs> and that the problem was not is not neoliberalism. The problem is racial capitalism. Yeah, I remember that song, Lead Belly, I think, um, people talking about depression. Um, but I've had a depression my whole life. So in some ways, the Great Depression is when it spreads beyond the most marginalized and the most oppressed and the most impoverished. Could you talk a bit about the title, Care, the Highest Stage of Capitalism? Well, this is obviously a play off of Lenin's imperialism. <laughs> And, you know, I, it, it's a provocative title. Um, and I chose that title. I, you know, I'm not an economist. So I am not actually going to fully make a claim that is the that it is the highest stage of capitalism. But I think there's plenty of evidence to suggest that we are moving in that direction. And my goal in choosing that title which actually it was a student uh, researcher who helped me come up with that title. Um, 
And my reason for choosing that title was to help us rethink care and the role of care and care politics in contemporary American society and how we understand it. And to really highlight the way that American capitalism is ever more reliant on care as a site of profit and extraction. That's so important. Um, you know, everyone should read this book. It's got insights on every page. It's, it'll illuminate a whole um, corner of capitalism that folks haven't really considered clearly enough. Um, it will really, really open your eyes. So get this book. It's super important. By the way, Premila, my working title for the book um, when I was reading it was I care, you care, but capitalism doesn't care in the least. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask one more, one more question. This podcast is called Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom, and it harkens back to the civil rights movement where freedom schools were organized in, and workshops were organized in parks and church basements and often under a tree. The subtitle is A Seminar on Freedom. And I'd love it if you could talk a bit about your North Star. What does freedom mean to you? And how do we organize ourselves to get free? You know, I go back to a lot of the early black feminist literature I read when I was an undergraduate student. People like Bell Hooks, Angela Davis, of course, um, Bernice Johnson Reagan, which is about Sherry Moraga, which is about um, how we can think about Black feminist scholarship and writing and politics as a source of liberation and reimagination of what a society could be. I would love for us to think about how to create a world free of inequality that is rooted in social justice, rooted in a true kind of collective care uh, without war and militarism. I think what's happening in Palestine right now is absolutely devastating. And I think, you know, to see an entire group of people um, uh, being killed off. I mean, it is nothing more than genocide. And, and I think we have the, the fact that it could happen and people could be in denial and even suppress voices who are suggesting that it is genocide is, is, is a tragedy, absolute tragedy. And so how can we begin to think about, a po if we want to go back to a politics of care, how can we create a politics of care that is truly inclusive? Um, and that includes even people who others don't see as fully human. Um, and so I think it's, it's finding ways to mobilize, to organize um, in order to achieve that. I think your book is really fantastic. And and the work you do is so, so important and also fantastic. I appreciate the book. I appreciate your work. And I'm quite grateful for your spending an hour with me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. It was wonderful to speak with you. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a force for authentic care, mutual care, which also requires collective resistance. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.